Hi, welcome to uh, CISO Live uh, webinars sponsored by Stealth ISS Group. Uh, this week, we're going to be covering a topic of ransomware and trying to understand how to uh, prevent it and how to handle it if you do get ransomware and go through some statistics and, and numbers that should be quite interesting for you. Um, before we get started, a little house cleaning. Uh, we're not here to sell you anything. We try to provide these to our community as a value add, and hopefully you'll benefit from the information that we share. Uh, today, we have Dasha Deckworth, founder of Stealth ISS Group, and myself, uh, Vice President at Stealth ISS, will be uh, the two panelists today covering the information. Uh, if there's any other questions that you might have, please don't hesitate to put them into the chat, and we'll try to get to them if we can uh, throughout this presentation. Well, without further ado, I'm going to jump into a PowerPoint and show you guys uh, some statistics of what's been going on recently uh, with, within this uh, area of ransomware. So, yeah. Pull up uh, one second. There we go. Oh, for some reason, my PowerPoint is not coming up. You want me to share it, David? Yeah, go ahead and share it. And we'll go through that. All right. Well, go to the next slide there, Dasha, slide two. So here's here's an interesting fact and, and, and something I don't think would be a shock to anybody, but uh, year over year, the average cost of ransomware is increasing on what it's causing within organizations, uh, within their networks and, and total overall cost um, after they've been hit with this. So just from 2020 to 2021, uh, we're seeing well over $100,000 increase on average per customer of 380,000 costs. This, this is a small to medium-sized business that this would be affecting. Of course, larger corporations, the number climbs from there. If you go to the next slide, Dasha. And uh, from organizations reporting ransom attacks in the last year, um, we saw an 88% report within Saudi Arabia. Um, in the US, it's saying over 54% have reported um, attacks within their, their network within last year. And I was recently at a conference and we had some uh, regional FBI agents and uh, secret service from Homeland Security. And the numbers that they're seeing that they said working with uh, IC3.gov uh, is that it's going to be more than doubled in 2022. Just what they're seeing within January, the numbers that, that are coming in, um, it's really climbing. So 
This is something um, that's here to stay, unfortunately, for a while. And um, we're just going to have to learn how to address it, how to work with it. And, and I think Dasha will have some, some really good uh, information as we get through um, our question and answers that can give you guidance on how to deal with ransom within your network ransomware. So um, if we wanna to go to a couple more slides and then we'll jump into the questions, Dasha, just to let them see some of the statistics. So by industry, uh, you're seeing government, you're seeing manufacturing, construction, utilities. Uh, it's really across the board. Now, um, I know they have healthcare down at 5.7. Um, I think this statistic was from 2020. Um, these are going to greatly increase. You're going to see a lot of industries where their uptime that is important for their business, things like healthcare, utility, certain types of manufacturers that are supporting critical um, infrastructure. Uh, ransomware is going after those type of industries where they know it's crucial for them to be up. If somebody's a manufacturer of balloons, they might target them as, a, as an opportunistic aspect, but that's not that's not their A-list. The A-list is go after people that will feel the pressure that they have to get their, their uh, ransomware paid and, and back operating. So that's really where they're, they're focusing um, from the report from, from the FBI agent that, that I sh that shared with us. So I'll go to the next slide. And most common methods of ransomware infections in North America Based on MSP reports, um, we're seeing that 67% comes through spam and phishing emails, which is, is not surprising. 36% um, lack of cybersecurity training. 30% weak passwords, access uh, management. 25% poor user practice guides, uh, guideability. And 16% malicious websites, web ads. So, you can see a lot of this can be addressed by just good hygiene and training within your organization. Um, it really isn't rocket science on, on this. Um, there are some, some sophisticated uh, phishing campaigns, but usually if you're well-trained and you understand where your emails are coming from and who you're communicating with, uh, usually 99% of the time you can avoid uh, that type of an attack. Um, all right. Dasha, let's switch over and, and we'll get into some of the questions that we received over this last month that we can start addressing. So um, first one was, what are the top ways organizations could get ransomware? We just saw a few. So um, phishing emails are definitely uh, one of the main uh, ways that, that people are, are getting infected, drive by downloading, um, infected websites and malware is downloaded and installed on, on a user's knowledge. Um, what are some other ways, Dasha, you think uh, people are, are getting infected through ransomware? Well, I mean, obviously web browsing, um, plugging in different um, USBs, downloading different software, testing it. Um, it, it, it can happen. You don't necessarily have to be active. So for example, um, a drive-by on websites, sometimes it just is, it is enough to open a website and you, and it suddenly starts downloading malware or ransomware. 
and uh, the users will not know about it. They haven't done anything wrong, but that's why the key is to have your endpoint protected and be able to know where you're actually browsing, where you're surfing. And if you as a company have, um, for example, web filtering in place, and I have a feed of what websites are okay, then great. And sometimes even the regular browser, Chrome, Mozilla, they already have that partially built in and that allows a lot of protection as well. Yeah, that, that's a great point that, you know, some of uh, the manufacturers out there, both Microsoft, OS, Apple, and the browsers have, have been increasingly adding security features to their products and people are not taking advantage of them. So it's important to look at security features you can turn on <coughs> within your browser. Next is, um, how quickly can ransomware spread? Very quickly, <laughs> very, very quickly. I mean, uh, ransomware really is, is pretty much um, a tool that will jump from one host to the other that will replicate itself, that will really, um, especially the bad ones, that will really just travel through your network and try to infect as many, as many hosts as possible. So yeah, if you are on a network and one of your hosts is, um, um, has the ransomware and you're sharing information with others and the other endpoints are not protected, you most likely will in a few hours see how quickly that can spread throughout the entire network if you have no security controls in place. I think in, in some statistics, it says less than four hours. To get Could be. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it depends on the systems. And of course, on your infrastructure, on the security features that have in place, I'm pretty sure that no company at this point has zero protection in place. Right. Um, so there is something. So that that will stop it. But key is also to uh, to really be aware of what's happening at the endpoint. So if um, if you don't have any endpoint protection on on your on your machines, then that's that's a big thing that needs needs to be changed. Because today's all this, the ransomware and the hackers, how they get into systems, it's not about trying to infiltrate and pass the firewall that you have because they're quite sophisticated. They have all the security features in there, but it's about getting to the endpoint and getting to your user. And that's really the key where the protection needs to be. Network of course as well, but I think at this point, especially where ransomware, malware, and everything is going, endpoint protection is the key to protect our businesses, even our internal at home, our home environment, our home network. Thank you. Um, we had a question here. It says, uh, can ransomware spread through Wi-Fi? And I would say yes, absolutely. Correct. It, it's the internet. I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's cable or not. It's the internet and actually the endpoint gets infected. So yeah, it's, um, if you have internet or if you plug something in, it, it can do it, of course. Um, one of the questions that came in here uh, was, how long does it take to fix ransomware? And that, that could be um, a range. I don't think there's one set time. No, I mean, we, we've seen it a few times. We had, uh, we had clients that had ransomware. If it's just one asset, 
for example, and you blocked it across the network, then of course, sometimes just, you know, if you have a backup, then, you know, putting the new S on there, re-imaging it and restoring from backup the data, not a problem that can go relatively quickly if you have the tools. But if it has spread across an entire infrastructure, then you're talking multiple hosts. Um, of course, that's gonna take a long time. But also one key thing here is, is a lot of times the companies, I mean, there's two options, two choices, if how to fix it. Either you pay the fine and then get everything unlocked and hope that after that you clean everything up so that you don't have the remnants of that ransomware there and they can come back after you. Or the second one is you wipe everything clean and restore from a backup. backup. But the thing is on a backup, you need to know what the safe restore point is because do you really know when you got that malware? It could have been sitting there for six months just because it got activated today does not mean that it, you got it today. So- Right, and then on some applications and systems, I know, especially when you're dealing with databases, if you're backing that up on an in incremental aspect and you try to go do a full restore, you're, you're in for a rude awakening. There's, you have to back it up a special way if you're doing from scratch, reinstalling the entire database and all the information, so. Um, one of the things here it says is how common ransomware is. 85% um, of MSPs reported ransomware is common threat to both small and mid-sized businesses. So 29% of small businesses have experienced ransomware. The average size company for ransomware is uh, around 645 employees. One thing I did want to mention um, on that conference where uh, the FBI agent spoke about ransomware now, it's their official position to, to encourage you not to pay ransomware. They'll always say that because they don't want to reward bad behavior and have this industry continue to grow, but apparently it still is. But if you are going to pay the ransomware, you're going to take your chances that they'll actually give you the right decrypt key. It's important to contact um, the FBI you know, in the beginning either before you do it or, or right when you're going to do it because they can get involved and they can start tracking and that can help them. And a lot of times there are situations where they've get, gathered information from these same organizational uh, crime units that are doing this ransomware. And sometimes they'll use the same de-encrypt key and they have, have gotten that information and shared it with other companies and it worked to where they didn't have to pay. So. It's always important to uh, get the law enforcement involved that uh, they can help. And also it, it helps them in, in tracking uh, these organizations and, and trying to, to stop them. So, Yeah, 100%. And um, we've done just recently a, a big project um, about incident response and how to respond to these things. And that was a combination for state, local, but also commercial. And one key thing here is really reach out to the sources that you have available, FBI, for example, local law enforcement. And it really does not matter if you are a small business. Uh, maybe you're thinking, oh my God, I'm, I only got 30 laptops or 30 computers and I got hit by ransomware, but I'm too small to bother the FBI. You know what? 
No, that's not the pro that's not the case. The FBI has a website. There's so many other companies out, sorry, agencies and companies out there that freely share information that you can report these kind of things with, and they will share their information, how to do about it, how to go, who can help. And even if you don't know in-house who to approach, um, they will be able to guide you. They will tell you, here's your best uh, first steps. And a lot of these organizations also have those first steps, the basic checklist on their websites already. Absolutely. And, and also they, you know, they have a better chance of, of recovering your money if, you, if you're deciding to pay, if they're involved from the beginning or close to the time versus five days later after you've made that payment. So the sooner the better. It says here, can ransomware spread through a VPN? Absolutely. VPN is going to protect you um, from a man in the middle and make it harder for somebody to get in. Uh, but if you already have the ransomware, it will travel right through that virtual private network tunnel up to your other machines. It'll just be encrypted really nicely till it gets delivered to the other side. So, um, but you can still spread it even through a VPN. All right. Uh, I think those were some of the general questions. Um, let's take this into a different direction. And Dasha, I wanted to have you go through some of the steps to help prevent and limit impact of ransomware. All right, well, that, that's a big topic because it starts really with knowing what you have and knowing what you need to protect. And as a general rule, and without going too deep, as a general rule, um, you should be protecting pretty much everything, but there are probably in your business some areas that require probably a little bit more protection. And those are the areas you should be focusing on first. Because we all know security, protection, budget, time, people, knowledge, it's, you're going to need all of that. So the, the best approach is really trying to figure out what is your key critical assets. If, for example, you're in the healthcare industry, we're talking here data privacy, so your patient's information, and we're talking about the vital document or the vital assets that you need to maintain your business operations. If you're an accounting company, probably your accounting computer or your finance computer or the databases behind it. So that you need to first understand what do you need to protect, how critical that is. And then from there, making sure that you as a company and everybody else associated with it, everybody that works with those critical assets knows and has the plans and policies. So creating a plan saying, okay, we will do a backup. We will do use encryption. We will set permissions for you to access this and this. We will have endpoint antivirus, EDR, XDR, SIM, whatever, installed, monitored 24 seven, in-house, outsourced. You need to have a plan. You need to have a structure, how you're gonna do it. And then of course, backups. You need to figure out how you're gonna do the backups. And here's one thing that I've seen a lot or we've seen a lot is, yeah, yeah, we're doing backup. We're doing backup. But the question is, have you tested it? And to David, to your point earlier, is especially databases, um, they're hard, they're easy to backup, but sometimes really hard to restore, especially if you don't want to restore the whole database, but only bits and pieces of it. Uh, you need to make sure you back it up properly, test it. And also there are different tools out there that can actually make sure and validate 
the backup that you're taking is also clean and safe. Because here's the point, you don't want to back up something that already has the malware on it. Or at least when you restore it, your backup should be hopefully have some kind of a feature to identify what is it that I'm restoring? Is it clean? Is it safe? Is it, you know, before you restore it? Right. And I've seen situations where people have done backups and, and then there was a version change within the software and they didn't do a, a new backup on that version change. And then they went to reinstall and there was a problem because it, it didn't, it didn't work nicely with the previous version when they tried to load it into the newer version. So, and, and that kind of goes into the plan as well and being able to know what you need to do at what point and also who is responsible for it and when they're going to do it. Because yeah, if you back something up that's old and you try to restore it after somebody has patched something or upgraded a version of the software, you're probably not going to have a lot of success. Right. And, but and that brings us to, brings us to another point is patching. Patching is probably one of the, I would say, not necessarily easiest, but one of the key critical areas that companies need to address is, yes, you will not be able to patch everything on a daily basis. Yes, you probably will have systems that cannot be patched because who knows, uh, legacy systems or you have production, but you should, best practice, is to patch Windows environments every 30 days. If there's something critical, it should be patched as quickly as possible. And that requires also somebody to actually monitor it, be responsible for it and do the work or automate it, doesn't matter. But patching is still one of the easiest way to get into your system. So it does not take a lot to even automate this process. No. I'd sense. rather stay up on patching than to, to, to start from scratch and, and write a uh, disaster recovery and business sustainability plan. That's a lot harder than just doing patching, <laughs> although you need to do that. But the point is, hopefully you never have to get to the business or disaster recovery plan if you're doing the proper things. So um, what about reviewing port settings? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, that's I call it part of hardening the systems and having a baseline security or gold image for your environment where you really only allow applications to run that need to run. And that's it. Um, that's really it. That's all you need. You don't want to have, for example, if your team does not use Skype, don't allow that application to be installed, uninstall it. I know today, um, if you buy a computer, it comes with all sorts of tools and great stuff and everything. But guess what? Each one of those is a risk. It probably will have vulnerabilities in there and is a foot in the door in your in one of your computers and then from there on into your entire network. So first thing, if you have a machine, uninstall what you don't need, especially all the games all the stuff that it comes with, the whole Netflix, all the stuff, it's a business environment. So if you don't, if part of your business is not watching Netflix, uninstall it. And that will close some of the ports. And that's also where your vulnerability scanning, if you do it in-house or get a third party to do it for you, you will see what ports are open, which means there's an application behind it. And especially the ones that are vulnerable, 
like um, unencrypted ports, remote desktop, um, SMBs, all of those things that in most cases should not be run, you can deactivate those. And I think another one that people don't even think about is uh, all these add-ins and plugins for uh, your web browser, connect with Salesforce, connects with this. Um, there are ones out there that are not good. Uh, they're hiding as, as a legitimate piece and, and you're opening yourself up by just going in, hey, I got all these extra tools I could just add in and not checking with your uh, security team first before you, you start adding all this additional software. This brings in a good point when you're talking about only have what you need on, on your systems and, and let's bring it up to the user level. We should only be giving the users access to what they need. And if you want to address that, Dasha. 100%. Um, we've seen a lot of times, and I 100% agree, it's a lot easier to give everybody admin rights to the machine, because then if they need something, they're not going to come to your IT team to ask for it. So yes, it is a lot easier, but as a general rule, a user should have user access. No admin access, no permissions to install anything, update anything, make any configuration changes. That's up to the IT team. Um, and even the IT team, if they have admin permissions, they should have two accounts. One is an account that they use as a regular user on their machine on the day-to-day -day job. And then a separate admin account that they need to log in when they need to do admin work. And I know it's a pain because you got two different passwords, two different accounts, log in, log out, log in, log out. It's a pain, I know. But from a best practice perspective, it is best practice. It is also a requirement for HIPAA, PCI, NIST, CMMC, um, and probably a whole bunch of others as well. So that is a baseline. Give you And stick, stick to that in environment, no matter what. And you know, we practice that. I'm a VP and I don't get to install software on my laptop. You, you blocked me down, Dasha. So um, it's, it's a good thing though. Uh, it, it is a little bit of a pain uh, when, you're, when you're talking about uh, wanting freedom, but in today's environment with all the risks that we're dealing with, with all the ransomware and, and ways that, that uh, hackers are trying to get to us, um, that little bit of, of uh, discomfort goes a long way to adding protection in your environment. All right, um, let's look at uh, training the team. How important is training? Oh, I think that's probably the most important thing. It's, uh, if you, I mean, technology can only do so much. And uh, I think I'm starting to see the tendency where companies are moving away from throwing technology and really a lot of money into a problem but also going into this training because technology is only good as the weakest link and the weakest link are the people. It's, um, it's really, I mean, why, let's put it this way. An email will bypass pretty much all technology. It gets to your user. The user is going to take the action. So if they don't know what they can or cannot do, you're, yeah. I think, I think training, and might it even be, I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that offer really great and affordable 
training portals with videos and HR tracking and all that to meet compliance. Um, also a lot of free stuff out there. And of course, anyone, I mean, we even internally do it. If there's any kind of um, security breach or awareness or something, hey, don't do this, don't do that. Just the odd email across the entire company saying, hey, quick reminder, don't click on anything. There's something that we saw in the news that is just spreading like a wildfire. Just don't do that. Be aware of it. Or no, um, our CEO is never going to ask you to buy some gift cards or something like that. You know, <laughs> simple reminders. You can make it jokingly, but at least you're going to put it up there on people's minds and they will they will understand. And and it happens. We, we've had um, people that we know uh, have had their their um, purchasing department targeted with these these scams and and getting in and taking over email accounts and sending an email saying hey that the purchase order for XYZ company we need to send that out today and the number needs to be changed to such and such and they requested a different routing number and you would think that today's world that that wouldn't work anymore but believe it or not because of lack of training and, and people wanting to do a good job, wanting to be fast, wanting to, to uh, please management will fall for those kind of schemes. And, and that, that's a very good point. I mean, it's not, obviously it's not ransomware, but it's social engineering. And that goes back to the people. It's the, we are the weakest link in all of this. Um, yes, we have seen over the last, I think 10 years or 12 years for me, I have seen major, major companies, I mean, global enterprises falling for this, where somebody picked up the phone, called the finance department saying their vendor X, Y, and Z, rerouting the payment. They knew exactly what invoice, they knew the, P, the PO number, they knew the amount, they just changed the account number. And that was it. That was so, it. you know, we can, um, it, it is one of those things that, we need to be we need to be aware and especially now especially now with COVID, where people are working from home mm -hmm. and that's one of those things we've got i mean the social engineering is one thing that's it's it's going to apply no matter where you are and it doesn't matter if you're at home if you are in in a bar social engineering can happen there especially after you had some alcohol people like right. to talk right <laughs> We hope um, they're not drinking during the day during their job, but maybe they are to get through it. Who knows? But you're right. And and being in that remote situation where you're not in an office with three or four other um, co-workers, you're losing that, hey, Mary, what do you think about this PO that request just came in? And No, no, we're not changing the, you know, take it to the, the supervisor. You don't have that feedback loop to, to ask. And, and a lot of times working remotely, you won't pick up the phone or you won't, you're just trying to get your job done. So you're, you're missing out on that collaboration to double check yourself when you're, when you're stuck siloed in a remote location. So that the training, uh, another thing about a lot of the training programs, they come with the, the phishing, phishing practices where they'll send fake phishing emails to your uh, employees and, and you get to see you know, who's clicking on it, who's not, and being able to constantly up the training and, and get the training to the people that need it, the ones that, that are still falling for it, and they continue um, to um, 
increase the 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 difficulty level of those and make them more sophisticated and stuff. So, but the bottom line is, is training is something that should be an ongoing process. It's not a one time and and uh, you're done. It, it's a, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, getting some requests here. Can you? Oh, employee. So um, yeah, best practices even managing it from home. You know, a lot of that that training is virtual. So it doesn't matter if they're in the office or at home, um, they, they can click on a video, they can get the training and go through the modules. And then um, reminding your employees on best practices, working from home, things that they might forget uh, to continue to remind them to apply um, the security measures that they need to, whether they're in the office or working from home. Uh, the last one here I have for, for this uh, improvement is implement an IDS. We think this is uh, silly, but it, it really is. <laughs> you know, you yeah. wouldn't think people would think to, to talk, they should already be doing that. But why don't you address the, the IDS piece? Yeah, IDS or ER or XDR, whatever the latest flavor it is or whatever the current naming convention is, because that keeps changing and updating and upgrading. But Fact is, you need some kind of endpoint tool that goes now beyond antivirus. Antivirus is a basic thing. Here, what you need is an endpoint protection that will monitor what kind of application is about to start and validate the application. Any kind of processes that are about to start and have not been authorized. There are several tools out there that can do that. They're not very expensive, but basically the point is, and IDS, EDR, XDR, something will really take a look at what is about to be started, what is about to run. And if it's not whitelisted or if the, um, if the system has a feed where it checks against it, and for example, it does, not, it, it does not have a valid certificate, it's from an unknown source, or it's trying to communicate into an IP or it came from somewhere that it should not have come from, or it even tries to access memory and make some changes there. Stuff that usually don't happen, that is what it should protect you from. And this is really where the endpoint protection comes in. This is, this is really key that will help you from, that will significantly decrease the risk for you getting a, um, a ransomware. Yeah, and, and, and also with that, you know, you can install that yourself on your own networks, but if you, you know, this is where I'll, I'll put a plug in generically for MSSPs. If you don't have the bandwidth, you don't have your own SOC, you're monitoring your network 24 seven. This is where a, a good MSSP can, can play an important role in um, adding to your overall security uh, posture and your security team to where they're already familiar with some of the best in breed EDR, XDRs, uh, SEM as a service, SOC as a service, and they can come alongside, stall those agents, and then you have another set of eyes looking at your network 24-7. David, if I can add something to, um, uh, to the remote work, working from home. Sure. Um, so there is, and I'll, I, I know we're already what, two years into COVID, so it might not be as important as it was back then, but it still is because we still have a lot of people working from home and a lot of especially smaller companies kind of struggle with, okay, what, what do I need to do? Do I 
do I have them use their computer? Do I give them my computer? I mean, company computer, what's best? So the answer is a company laptop that is used for business only is the best approach. Similar to hardening systems, you only want stuff to run on it, what you need to do your job. It's the same thing here. If you're using your personal, if you have some one of your staff members use their personal computer to do your work or to do the regular job, guess what? They probably will have games installed on there. They will have stuff installed on there that doesn't need to be running. They will have Netflix and all of those stuff that you most likely do not need for your business. And that exposes you to a lot of problems right there. The other thing from a security and compliance perspective, if you cannot control it, you cannot control what the user is doing. So they can download, they can install, they can have it unencrypted, they can do whatever they want, and you have no control as a business owner. And especially if you are in an, in an industry that requires regulatory compliance, PCI, credit cards, HIPAA, healthcare, uh, SOPs, financials, um, even data privacy, any company for that matter, or CMMC, if you're a DOD contractor, you will need to control those. So the suggestion here is company laptop is the best. And you will want to apply the same rules here. Do a backup, uh, eliminate everything that is, not, that is not needed, implement the endpoint security, do all of those things that you would just like if they would be at home. Nothing changes there. You will need to really control your, your vulnerable endpoint, your employees from home. Yeah, you know, two-factor authentication. Um, another key point, because you are working from home and families, um, they have kids on Xboxes and, and all sorts of uh, other uses for their home network. Most of the, the router firewalls, you can get the ASUS and the Linksys and all of them, they make it pretty easy for you to, to subnet or separate and create multiple Wi-Fi networks uh, and, and logins. Create a separate one for your work. You know, create that space to where Johnny isn't logging into the same same uh, network ID a, as you are in your work, and, and it's a, it's a separate subnet network within the Wi-Fi, and, and and give yourself a little separation that way as well. And one thing to this, um, there are let's put it this way, sim sim tool for example. SIM is a great tool if it can be in the cloud, you can have it on-prem, it's all great. Um, but, or even EDRs, XDRs, IDS, but the key thing is you will need to control, especially for the people that work from home, you will need to control the laptop at all times, not only when they connect to your network, okay? Because we've seen it a lot where companies really have their security policies applied to those endpoints only at a time when they connect via VPN to the network. And to be honest, a lot of our work is in the cloud. Sometimes you don't, or most of the times, you don't even need a VPN to access those cloud services. So how many times are they going to connect to the VPN? Eh, unless you force them to view their paycheck every two weeks, or unless you have something really critical that they need to work on and it's only accessible via VPN, then they will log in and then all the security 
applies, you know, you can push out. So you want to have, you want to consider a endpoint protection that works at all times, regardless if they're connected to your network or not, or working from home, working from Starbucks, traveling, does not matter. That protection needs to be there. Great point, Dasha. All right, let's take a, um, a little turn and I wanna talk about how we respond to a ransom attack. So you've gotten ransomware in your network. There's some critical things to do and some critical things not to do. So first I'm gonna run through uh, several points on, on things they should, you should think about doing first. And, and one of them, isolated effective systems. Why is this so critical to isolate? So you stop the spread. I mean, that's the first thing. So one of those but buttons that we have, for example, on our SOC and SIM is isolate system, deactivate network card, which means that's it. And then once you stop that immediate threat and the spread of it, then you can take all your time to investigate and do everything. But yeah, I, I think that's one of the very, very first and most important points. Unplug right. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Secondly, would be secure your backups. Um, you know, if they're all online and they're all connected to the network, uh, they're susceptible to getting the ransomware. They're susceptible to getting corrupted. So make sure that you secure those. And I would say also, it, it's good practice to have uh, offsite backup copies besides, uh, you know, a lot of people are doing online, they're doing up into data centers and storage centers, but it's good to have one that's separated off the network. Um, is that, would you agree on that practice, Dash? Oh, 100%, 100%, yeah. I mean, you don't have to do it as frequently as, you know, the daily cloud backup or, you know, your storage backup, but at least once a week or every two weeks have that extra backup done somewhere completely separate. Yeah. Yeah. What about disabling maintenance tests? I would, yes. I mean, it can be, I mean, yes, yes and no. I, I considering that the first step is isolated. Um, I'm hoping that at that point, most of the risk would be remediated. Um, disabling maintenance tasks, yes, until you know um, what exactly has happened, where your problems are. I mean, that's kind of a generic incident response. You don't wanna make any changes. You don't wanna to touch any of the systems. You wanna, you, you're gonna be in the investigation mode. So during the investigation mode, nothing gets touched, nothing gets changed unless you know and you gave the incident response team the permission or they give you the permission, the IT team, to make those particular changes to remediate it, to get rid of the, the threat. Right, I think where they were going with that is, is, being, is disabling maintenance tasks such as temporary file removal or log rot rotation so that the very point that you're, you're making that the evidence doesn't get moved or deleted or, or anything like that. Um, creating backups of infected systems. Why is this important? Well, I would, I would not, so I would not necessarily call it a backup. I would just call it a forensic image. Image, okay. Yeah, um, but again, I've, I've got my incident response hat team on, a t uh, hat on. 
because to me, this is already full-blown incident. Ransomware is one of the biggest uh, incidents you can have, regardless how small it is. So with this, I would just simply go, all right, uh, forensic image, the full image, including memory, everything, proper forensic, take proper um, control of it, uh, tag it, have proper chain of uh, custody, all of that, and then put one in a safe or somewhere so it can't be touched and the other one start investigating on it. And uh, that's really the key thing because it's one of those things that you will need to do to find out what exactly has happened, uh, what malware is it that you have or what ransomware is it that you have, what was stolen, what was changed, what was not changed, all of those things that you eventually will need to, uh, um, to identify where to restore, what to do. And then also, um, as you're still doing the analysis, you might want to, you will, might, you maybe will see that what you've gotten was just a simple splash page and somebody sending you an email telling you to pay something. It might not actually be proper ransomware. Uh, and you might find your way around to not having to pay for it. But you want that. And this also, you want the evidence, the forensic image, if you go to the police, if you go to the authorities, if you go to the FBI, they're going to need it. And it's important to really identify, you know, um, patient zero, right? And kind of back forensic, understand how, how it moved and where, where it moved and where it didn't move. And that's, that's also one of the key things. Once you identify that, how it got in, how it spread, that's going to be key for you then taking the, the next steps measures, which is the remediation and also the proactive steps of making sure that it does not happen again. So for example, if it came in through an application or um, a user that logged into their Gmail account or Yahoo account on their business computer, you might wanna consider filtering that or blocking Gmail or Yahoo because you can't control that. Right, right. You might be controlling your email, your business emails, and it's all clean. You don't get any spam. You don't get any of that, any malware links or nothing. But Gmail, Yahoo, if you don't control that, you can get it that way. Right. And then, you know, the identification, really understanding the strain, the ransomware strain that you got will also help you in, in your recovery and cleanups because you'll know exactly what it does within the network. Is it creating any sleeper files? Is it, is it changing Word docs? Is it hiding other places and, and you know, renaming files? And, and it's, it's creating these sleepers as we, as we call them. So, um, and then the next step, I guess, is decide whether to pay the ransom or not. But if they're doing the right steps, if they're doing the proper backups and they're doing all of these things, you should never have to get to the point of having to pay a ransom, correct? Um, yes and no. Um, sometimes the cleanup might take you a lot longer and will be more complicated than the fee to pay. But then you also have the risk of, are you really going to get the correct encryption key? And are you, are you going to be protected then? Can you do proper cleanup? still afterwards to make sure that the same malware ransomware that is sitting on your devices is not going to be activated three months from now again by the same person so no in general you should not pay the ransom but if uh, depending on how big the damage is i've seen customers where 
200, 300 assets uh, globally were compromised. And um, putting the manpower together versus paying $200,000, you know, it's, it's a decision. But in general, neither us nor um, probably most companies, as well as the FBI, do not recommend paying that because we are enforcing the bad behavior. And if, as long as we continue paying, it will be a market. It will always be a market. Yeah. Yeah. They say about one in 20 chance of the ransomware authors taking the money and providing a decryptor code. So Ooh, that's not good. That's not a, a really good, uh, good odds. All right. Um, let's switch and, and just reinforce things not to do in a ransomware attack. So the first one, uh, do not restart impacted devices. Yeah, because if you already have something there and you restart it, you're not fixing the problem. And most ransomware actually, because of that restart, they can start functioning again, they can start spreading, they can do a hell of a lot more damage than if you just do not restart it. Right. Second here is do not connect external storage devices to infected systems. That, that should be obvious, but. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, let's put it this way. You, you can, if you're doing forensic analysis and it's the right tool with the right, um, right connectors and everything to pull an image, you can do that. But um, in general, no, whatever you plug in, uh, most likely it's going to get infected. So amateurs need not apply to do this stuff. Only let the professionals. Um, do not pay the ransom immediately. Um, there's things you need to figure out before you pay. So one, can you recover? Is your system really locked down? If you're working with the FBI, do they have a decryptor uh, key that they could help you out and you don't have to pay? Um, you know, did only a few systems get corrupted to where the rest of the network is, is not corrupted and it's not so bad and your backups will work. So you need to do some investigation. You need to put some um, patience before you panic and go, go pay. Yeah, and a couple other things I would like to add to it. So, um, I mean, we have, um, we have an incident response team as well. And I know when the clients call us, it's always, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, okay, calm down. You're already infected, something already happened. Let's think about it. What are the ways? So for example, if you are the company and have that, really the first thing, do you have the in-house capabilities? Can you do something to analyze what really happened? The other thing is, if you have a company that provides incident response services on a retainer, call them. They might be able to help you. Of course, FBI and all these agencies, they have tools as well. They have inside information. But also, most important things that a lot of companies forget is your cyber insurance. If you have cyber insurance, give them a call. That's what you're paying them for. They will put you in touch with, well, depending on what cyber insurance you have, but most likely they will put you in touch with a company that will come and help you recover from this, that will do the forensic investigation, that will help you recover, identify, and get you back up in there. And the insurance should cover that either all of it or some of it, or at least point you to the right direction based on your policy. So that is key. If you don't have a cybersecurity policy, um, explore it. It's um, 
the question of if you're going to get ransomware or hacked or something is not if, but when. So you might want to consider what is the risk of you not having it and getting hit by attackers or ransomware and then having somebody to help you guide you through and then pay for all these expenses because recovering from an attack is expensive it another works. key point with that if you have an MSFP you're working with that has um, those capabilities of doing instant response and forensics make sure ahead of time before something happens if you have cyber insurance you get your cyber insurance company to talk to the MSSP a lot of times they want to force a client that they've picked because they they you know negotiated a price and as long as the company you're you're using is vetted most insurance companies will let you use a company that you're already familiar with already doing some services but you need to set that up ahead of time don't wait to the day of the incident to talk about um hey can i use x y and z company for my incident response with your insurance company so <clears throat> all right um do not communicate on the impacted network why is this important because if it's already compromised and you don't know what exactly has been compromised and how in general um you can very easily if you already got as an attacker your foot in the door you can install sniffers you can do all sorts of stuff you can exfiltrate information you can you can identify you can really sit there and listen to the communication or watch and read the communication and emails or chat on how you want to remediate it so if i'm the hacker i'm sitting there and i'm seeing okay now you're going to want to take this device offline and i've got my beacon right in there where i'm communicating i'm just going to move it somewhere else because i can see what you're doing so be careful use complete separate communication means or encrypted all right and the last one and we covered it kind of under other things but don't delete any files do not delete anything um the forensic investigators need that and the law enforcement if you get them involved that could be crucial information that you might be deleting yeah all right and especially um, on the restart um, yeah if you restart a computer everything in memory is going to be gone so you do not want to restart a computer or shut it down. Just unplug it, let it sit until you get somebody that can investigate, has the right tools and can take all the information out of memory. All right, um, we just have about five minutes left. I'm gonna read through some pointers that says, how can we reduce risk of ransomware infection? Uh, there's a couple key things, and then uh, if you want to expound on that, Dasha, but I'll go through them. Uh, credential hygiene. It's uh, practicing good credential hygiene uh, can help against brute force attacks, mitigate the effects of uh, credential theft. Principle of least privilege, and I think we, we kind of already covered that in a previous section, but um, if your employees don't need access to the financial databases or files or directories, don't give them that access. Give them only the access that they need within the network to do their job and nothing else. Um, and egos go out the door. It's not about ego. It's not about anything else but, but uh, being secure. Uh, employee training, 
We talked about that multi-factor authentication. We talked about that. Review Active Directory. Um, uh, this is important to, to close any existing backdoors, uh, compromise service accounts. You know, your Active Directory, you can set up a lot of different connections and, and administration accounts. And sometimes there could be accounts set up that you didn't realize were there and, and you need to clean those and, and make sure only the accounts that are set up that you know about and, and only admin accounts that you've approved. So uh, network segregation, this is, this is a basic crucial thing that's so important. When you get hit with ransomware, if you've done proper segregation, uh, it can make a huge difference between your entire network being you know, infected versus just a small section. Dasha, you wanna elaborate that, on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um... In, in general, a network's um, segmentation is, is critical because if something happens in one area of the network, let's say your test environment, something goes bad and you don't have it proper segmented out or completely firewalled off from your production, you're going to have a problem. And the same thing here is if you have firewalls between different network segments, if, for example, your financial team gets um, ransomware, that probably will be contained within that particular network area. Right. Otherwise it might spread really. If you have a flat network, you're probably gonna be exposing every single asset that is on your flat network. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of small companies because they just haven't taken the time to do it, um, usually are running on a flat network. Avoid BYOD. Um, don't let employees just come in and, and plug in external hard drives and and other devices into your network that you don't know about. So PowerShell, if, if you have to use it within your environment, should be closely monitored. Um, this is such a powerful tool. And if the hackers get access to this, they can do all sorts of uh, nasty things within your network. And then we talked about cybersecurity insurance. So um, really quick, you know, a lot of these things, for, for smaller companies are, are a lot to tackle. This is where an MSSP um, could help come alongside. We could you know, minimize your cost, a good MSSP can. Um, the other thing is you're getting somebody that's an expert in this area that deals with it 24 seven. As a business owner, as a small company, this is not something you're dealing with on a daily basis. And to try to tackle this by yourself sometimes can be a little overwhelming. Um, and, you know, the 24-7 monitoring, I think that's so important in today's environment, Dasha, that um, it's not just about technology. It's, it's, it's about eyes on the glass as well, along with that technology. As we, as we say in the industry, process technology and people, right? People process technology. Uh, people people process, first, process second technology last. <laughs> but yeah, you're 100% you're right. It's... Uh, the technology piece is the last, the people and the right, how to do things. That's really the key that will, will get us all protected. Well, great. Well, we want to appreciate everybody joining us today. That's, that's all that we have. I think we're going to put an ebook out, right, Dasha, on this. Yep. So watch for that uh, in your email box that will provide that, that will have a lot of these good pointers for you. We hope this has been informative for you. And until next time, in uh, two weeks, we'll have another informative webinar, and we look forward to seeing you back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, David.